would pray with me before we open God's word together to Hebrews 1. Let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is life-giving, that, it, uh, that you create and recreate through your word. And we pray this morning that as we open it, as we begin to spend time working our way through the book of Hebrews, that you would lead and guide and teach us in this time. We confess that without your Holy Spirit, we cannot do this. And so we ask that you would come and move freely in this place and you would apply the truths of your words to our hearts, that you would change us and mold us into your image evermore as we continue to seek you. We thank you uh, for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you've given us your word, that you've given us the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling us and leading and guiding us. And so we just pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I wonder how many of you remember uh, having rabbit ear antennas on your television. Uh, no. I, I do. I remember as a kid having rabbit ears on there. Uh, maybe, maybe you remember having rabbit ears. And in my house, we had foil on the end of it that made it better, right? If you tighten it up and you squeezed it and you turned it just right, it would get good. And then the picture would be a little better. And then maybe you bumped into it or somebody threw a ball and hit it. Oh, you ruined the picture, right? And then years later, you get uh, cable. Cable's plugged into the back and it's screwed in there so it can't come out and now we can't mess it up by bumping it. And, and the picture got a lot better. Uh, then, then fast forward a little bit, the VCR came out. I remember my dad brought home the first VCR we had in our house. It was about this big, about that wide, and it was about that tall. It was this big giant box and it sat on top of our TV, which was about as big as this table, but the screen was like this big. It's like a 19-inch screen inside this giant cabinet of, of wood. That was the TV I had when I was in college. And you'd turn on it and go, Take a second for it to come on. And it looked terrible. It was an awful color. And, but we watched it and we thought it was great at the time. And then I remember uh, getting out of college and buying a DVD player. Like I had my first job and I was going to buy a DVD player. And it was so cool because you didn't have to rewind. And you could go right to what you wanted to watch. And the picture was so much better and the sound was so much better. And everybody was really excited. And then a couple of years later, I remember walking into Best Buy and for the first time seeing an HD TV. and a plasma TV hanging on the wall. And I couldn't believe how clear it was. It was like, this is cool crazy looking at the you stare at it and go this is so crazy how good the picture is now you go into the store they're all hd right they're all this wide and they can hang on the wall and they're that big actually if you go into best buy now they have what they call 4k which is four times the resolution of your hd tv and so it's even more so and you go in and you look at it i went in the other day with the boys and we were in best buy and they had uh what do you call it uh an aquarium on the screen and they thought it was real Right? It's that clear of a picture that you just can't get over. You're, you're staring at it going, how can I tell that this is just a projected image? And so we've come a long, long way in the ways that we, we see images and we see TV and we see that. And, and it's come a whole long way. What, what we have now when you walk in and there's an 80-inch TV that's got all this stuff, you can't even imagine that when you were a kid. Or I can't when you're back with the rabbit ears and, and what that was like. And so I mentioned that. I start there this morning because when we read the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 1, he says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And what that very literally says is that God spoke in piecemeal over the years. At various times, in various ways, he spoke through different people at different times like this. And he spoke through prophets. Uh, he spoke at one time talking through the, the voice of a donkey. You can look that up if you don't know where that is. But he did that. God spoke in all these different ways at different times. But it says in these last times, he's now spoken to us in his son, Jesus. And it's a little bit like going from the rabbit ears 
with the grainy picture and you're hearing it and you can see it and you know what's going on. And yes, you hear it. And yes, the prophet speaking was God's words to the 4K when Jesus comes. We see the fullness of who God is and what that looks like. And so this morning we're going to start this process of working through the book of Hebrews together. And what we're going to see as we go through Hebrews is this fullness of the revelation of who God is through Jesus. And one way we could look at Hebrews and we could say, and it's kind of what we titled this sermon series, is Jesus is better than everything. Or Jesus is greater than everything. And what we see played out in Hebrews, one of the themes we see played out in Hebrews, is that it shows us that Jesus is better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than the law, he's better than the temple, he's better than the high priest. And it's all these things, the way God spoke to us before. What the author of Hebrews tells us is all those things were pointing to the fullness that would come in Jesus. And so as we work our way through Hebrews, we're going to see that kind of recurring theme that Jesus is better than everything. But when we think about the book of Hebrews and what they're written to do, the original audience, it was written to the early church. It was written to encourage people that were facing very real persecution and hardship in their lives. If they had become Christians, they had heard of Jesus or they had seen Jesus, they had grown in this, they had put their faith in him, but then things were still difficult. They were still very hard. And so this letter is written to encourage them. It's written to encourage us. And what we see throughout Hebrews really is this journey that we see walking this life of following Christ is a journey of, of one from weariness to rest. We're seeking to rest in who God is. And so the way that the author does that in Hebrews is by pointing us to Jesus and how he's better than everything. Just full disclosure, as we start the book of Hebrews, many of you know this. We don't know who the author is. There's a lot of debate on that, and scholars like to talk about it. Some think it's Paul. Some think it's Barnabas. Some think it's some others. I had a professor in seminary who used to say, we're going to get to heaven, and all these seminary professors that have studied are going to find out that it's a guy named Bill Hebrews. And we're all going to go, oh, okay, yeah. Why didn't we think that? (laughs) But we don't know. And the truth is it doesn't really matter. Uh, It's God's word and it's inspired and it points us magnificently to who Jesus is. And so we're going to work our way through the book of Hebrews starting this morning. And so this is the way we're going to begin, looking at chapter 1. Simply put, we're just going to look at first, who is Jesus? Uh, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 is one of the greatest, fullest, highest pictures of who Jesus is. And so we're going to ask the question of who he is, his resume, so to speak. Who is Jesus and what it says? And it says a lot in those two verses. And then we're going to ask uh, why Jesus is better, right? Because that's going to be a recurring theme throughout Hebrews. Who is he? Why is he better? And then lastly, how do we live in light of this? Or how does this help us in our journey from weariness to rest? Right. So who is he? Why is he better? How does this help us? And so let's start with just that first question. Who is Jesus? His resume, so to speak, this soaring high uh, picture of all that Jesus is. And so look at verse one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So I want to just stop there for just a second, and we'll run through this fairly quickly. But he says a lot of things about who Jesus is right here at the beginning. If you notice, the very first thing he says in verse 2 is he says, He's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He's the heir of all things. And so think about just what that means, to be the heir. It means all things are yours. And so the very first thing it tells us about who Jesus is, is that everything is his. He is the heir of all things. It's all his, every bit of it. And then the next thing he says is he's the creator. And it says uh, he is the heir of all things. And then it says, um, through whom also he created the world. John will say something very similar in John 1.3. And John does something very similar at the beginning of John as he begins to flesh out who Jesus is. And he says in John 1.3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That is, everything that was created was created through Jesus. He is the creator of all things. So he's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. And then you get to verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We often say that we were made to glorify God. And when we talk about that, we say glorify means to reflect back who God is. Well, with Jesus, what it tells us is he's the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Word literally means character. Like when they made a coin and they stamped it on it, it was the exact same thing. So another way to say that is Jesus is God. When you see Jesus, you see God in the flesh. And so think about the the analogy at the beginning. God spoke to us at different times in different ways this way, but in these last days he's spoken to us in his son who is God. When you see Jesus, you see the fullness of God now in the flesh. And so we have that he's the heir of all things. He's the creator. He's God. And then the next thing it says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only did he create all things, all things exist because he holds them in existence. He's not just the creator. He's not just heir of all things. He's not just God. He actually sustains us moment by moment. He holds us together by the word of his power. So you start to get the idea of how big the picture is here of Jesus. But then it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The way Jesus makes purification for our sins is he empties himself of all that is afforded to his position as the creator, sustainer, as the heir of all things. And he enters this life and he lives the life that we have come to live. But he lives it perfectly. He doesn't sin. He honors God in all things. He does everything perfectly in every way. And he gets to the end of his life. And he deserves all the blessings that come with honoring God and everything. Except yet he says, I'm going to do the great exchange. I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to give you my righteousness. And I'm going to give it to you by grace through faith. And I'm going to purify you from your sinful broken ways. The heart of the gospel Jesus does what we could never do for us. He purifies us from our sins by his life, atoning death, and then the resurrection is the stamp of approval on that. And so he does all that, and when he gets done, he sits down at the right hand of the Father, and it says he's made purification for sins. And so now you can add to his list of accomplishments, to his resume, he's not only creator, sustainer, but he's also redeemer and savior. 
He's all of it. Every bit of it right there at the beginning in two verses. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father on his throne. So he's the heir of all things. He holds all things. He's now reigning and he will reign for eternity. He will always be the center of our worship. The only way we get to stand before the Father and be in his presence is because of Jesus. And we will know that for all eternity. And so you see this picture. It's the highest of the high of our Christology. We just mean how we study who Jesus is. Hebrews 1 and 2 verses gives us the highest picture of what that looks like. But there's one more thing I want to just point out to you before we move on. It says he sits down at his throne and then verse 4 says, Having become superior to the angels, as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son and today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This one's a little more opaque. It's a little more hidden when you start to look at it. But if you look at the references of what the author is quoting from the Old Testament, Psalm 2, and then in Second uh, Kings, or I'm sorry, Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, those are the two quotes there that he gives us to. Both of those are, it's a messianic psalm, and then one is the Davidic covenant where God is promising to David, you're always going to have an heir to the throne for eternity. So what the author is pointing us to and telling us is that Jesus is not only all these other superlatives that we've just laid out, that when you look at this, that he's also the Davidic heir, the promise of all the Old Testament, of the reigning king who's going to come and set all things right. That is, he's the Messiah. And so he gives us this picture. It's why the author of Hebrews will say in chapter 2 in just a few verses, for whom and by whom all things exist is Jesus. He's the creator and sustainer, but he's also the very center of all of human history. The story is also about him. He not only came up with it and holds it together, he's now at the very center of it. As the savior, as the reigning king, as all of it. That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so when you put all that together and you see this picture, you get quite a picture of who Jesus is. The highest of the high. And so when you start to ask the question of looking at this picture, hopefully it starts to become obvious of why Jesus is better. That's the second question I want us to consider. Who is he? Well, here we have this picture. He's heir, creator, redeemer, sustainer, reigning on his throne. He's the promise, uh, the fulfillment of all the promises. So why is he better? And so when we start to look at this and we start to read our way down through Hebrews chapter 1, he goes to great lengths to talk about how Jesus is superior to the angels. You'll see that repeated a few times. You see it in in verses 5 and 6 and 7 and then in 13 and 14. He says it over and over and he goes through this and he goes to great lengths and he can tell you, yeah, okay. (laughs) Right? Yeah. He's saying he's better than the angels. If you grew up in the church and you've read your Bible and you've known that, you probably don't have a big Uh, beef with that if you're a believer that jesus is better than the angels but it's interesting to stop and think about the original audience and who he's writing to and what's going on i doubt any of us are really dealing with friends on a regular basis that are seeking to worship angels over jesus right that's probably not something we're running into day to day Uh, at least i'm not i don't usually deal with that but i want us to think about what's going on here in the context some did worship angels In this time, 
Some Jews believed that God spoke through the angels and they had a certain place and that they should uh, honor them as such. Different people had different views. You see this pop up in the New Testament at different times, uh, making a big deal out of spirits and different things and, and not seeing Jesus as the fullness of who he is. And so there's that picture that is there. And so you see the way he goes through it and the, the reasoning he uses to refute that. You see in verse 6, he says, And when again he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And so he goes back and he quotes scripture and he's applying it and he's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises and how God says the angels are supposed to worship Jesus. And he starts to flesh that out and show you that and work through that with you. You get to verses 13 and 14. And he says, in which to the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That is, God uses them. They, they work for him and they're ministering spirits that are under him that worship Jesus. And we're not supposed to be worshiping angels. Now, again, we don't normally deal with that quite like that. We do sometimes have some weird things that come up about angels. Uh, every once in a while, somebody will say, uh, somebody dies, someone passes away. Oh, uh, heaven just got a new angel. Someone just got their angel wings. Uh, just so we're clear, you don't become an angel when you die. Right? The Bible doesn't teach that. You get a glorified body to live out your days in God's new regenerate earth, the new kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth. You don't become an angel. Right? We're made in God's image and we're made this way and we get glorified bodies. Now, that's kind of a side note. But it's important for us to at least mention. But we do struggle at different times as they did here. They had this very real thing in front of them in their culture of struggling with this. And so we can go, well, what do we do with that? That if they were struggling with worshiping angels, this is a different culture, a different time, a different place. But there is an eternal truth here that we should consider. We don't worship angels. But what does worship mean? What does it mean to worship something? To start looking about that, thinking about that. It needs to give our love and our adoration, our devotion, our time, our attention. Those are the things that we worship. The things that become the most important to us that we give all our focus to. And so as I started to think about that definition, what that looks like, is there anything in your life that fits that picture? That you begin to adore and devote your time and attention and your whole life begins to revolve around in fact, is there anything that rises to that level in your life that maybe at different times surpasses your love and adoration and devotion to Jesus? If we're real honest and we begin to think about that question, there probably are times when that happens. Different things capture our attention and our devotion and our affections and where we give our time. I don't know what that is for you. So I was thinking about that different times in my life. The fact that I even know this reveals something about my own heart. Seven weeks from now, college football starts again. I don't know if you knew that, but I don't know if you're counting that down like apparently I am, but I'm excited about it, right? Like I love college football, big fan. And so then it starts and what happens is it starts, you get into it and you get excited and you check the polls and you read articles and you start to watch games and watch the highlights. Maybe you go to a game you travel to a game, you tailgate, you do all this. And then I will start to wonder if you were to add up all of that time that you spend 
all that energy that's devoted, if someone outside of your life did an audit of how you spend your time and your affections and your energy, where would that fall on the list? Would it maybe in some weeks start to rise above your devotion and energy and time and affection for Jesus? Maybe. You might sit here and say, well, I'm not a football fan, so that's not me. I can exempt myself because I don't really care that much about college football. And that's fair. Maybe that's true. But then I would ask, how much time do you spend online? How much time do you spend on your phone? How much time do you spend with entertainment? How much time do you spend shopping? How much time do you spend adoring and focused on your children or grandchildren? And do any of those things rival the affection and the time and the devotion you give to Jesus? You can only answer what that looks like in your life. But the truth is that we are not worshiping angels, or I don't know anyone personally that is, but we are struggling with worshiping a lot of other things. Each day, those things are popping up all around us. But the question I want to ask is when we read Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, is there anything that can compare to the picture that's painted there of our Savior, Redeemer, Creator, Sustainer? No. There's nothing that's even close. Yet we act like it all the time. All the time we let other things start to bubble up and overshadow what that looks like. And so what I want us to think about is here he talks about Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than everything. Even the good things that are in your life. And so I want to be careful when I say this. It doesn't mean don't enjoy college football. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty that college football is coming on or whatever it is that you enjoy or those things. That's great and that's wonderful. Those are good gifts. Enjoy it. Have fun in those things. That's not sinful. It's not bad. But what we see all the way through Scripture reiterated over and over and over again is have no other gods before me. Have no other idols. Don't let things rise to the place where they are now jockeying for position with Jesus at the top. We are to enjoy those things, but they're supposed to take their proper place. And when we get them kind of out of whack, it causes all kinds of problems in our life. I mentioned football because we live in the middle of SEC country, right? College football. Oftentimes they say, they'll say this all the time, when college football season starts, SEC football is a religion in the South, right? They say that all the time. You'll hear it over and over, right? And it is. In the way that we let it rule our lives, you see it in all different ways. Being here for five years, lots of people don't show up on Sunday morning because they spent too much time and energy watching or going to football games on Saturday. Now, that happens sometimes. You take a trip, you do those things, don't feel guilty about that. God doesn't love you based on your attendance on Sunday morning, thankfully. But when that becomes the pattern, that becomes the way your life moves and goes, and that's the way it is, that's a problem. Or worse yet, physically you could be here on Sunday morning, but emotionally you're too crushed because your team lost. I'll just be in a bad mood and I don't want to be around anyone else tomorrow, so I'm just not going to go. And we laugh because it's true, right? At different times, big loss. Full disclosure, I remember very vividly laying in my bed thinking about a basketball game at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I hadn't gone to sleep yet. Right? 
I actually looked it up the other day. It's 2008. A&M lost to UCLA in the NCAA tournament. I looked it up the other day so I could tell you the date, and the first headline says, A&M robbed because of bad call. And I was like, oh! It all came back. <laughs> you got to be kidding. He was so fouled, right? But I remember laying there and God convicting me of why are you so upset over this? And praying through that and thinking about it. And clearly God speaking to me, how often do you lay awake at night because of your unbelieving neighbors and friends? At the time, not near as much as I cared about basketball. And as I prayed through that, I don't lose sleep over games anymore. I still get upset. Joanna will tell you. There's football games that end and I have to take my time and walk away for a minute. But then that's it. Put it in its proper perspective in its right place. See, the thing is we struggle with worshiping all different kinds of things. We let things rise to a level they should never be. And when we do, we're turning God's design upside down. And it's always going to cause problems. We talk about this frequently, but the idols of our heart, when good things become ultimate things, when your children become the idols of your life, they will disappoint you and your emotions will be tossed to and fro all over the place. They cannot withstand being the center of your existence. Only the creator, redeemer, sustainer, savior that we see in verses two and three can do that. And so the picture that here is that Jesus is far better than anything else. And in fact, when you see what it says in verse 2 and 3, it doesn't make sense for anything to ever come close to that level. He is so far better. And so what I want us to end with is just think for a few seconds, how do we live in light of the truth of Hebrews 1, 2, and 3? And there's a couple things I would say to you. The first part I want us to go back and just think about when it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. This brilliant, wonderful uh, conclusion that the author is pointing us to. As great as Jesus is, that He is the Creator and He upholds us by the power of His Word and all those things He tells us, that He's not a faraway God, but He's come to us and He can be known by us. As huge as that picture is, he humbled himself and he came and he says, I want a relationship with you. I'm not far off. I'm not unapproachable. I am gracious and kind and long-suffering and I open my arms and I welcome you in and I desperately want a relationship with you. The author says, God spoke it many times in many ways through prophets and in these ways, but he didn't just stay there. He didn't just boom his voice from Mount Sinai. He didn't just speak through the prophets. He said, I'm going to come down and enter in so that you can know me. And so you see this picture, but right at the heart of it is a person that we can know and that we can walk with. And so the picture that's here is that we get him. We get a relationship with this person, with Jesus. And he's not far off. And so when we start to think about it, the second thing I'd say is how do we not make Jesus the center of our lives? It doesn't make any sense. When you see who he is and what he's done and how he's come for us, the idea that he's going to be secondary or he's going to be over here or he's going to come behind my love of football is insane. It makes no sense. 
And so the picture that we'll see, and we'll see it recurring in Hebrews, kind of a a preview for next week, the very first thing he says in chapter 2, therefore, so in light of what I've just told you about who Jesus is, we we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. And that very literally says we must become furiously obsessed with the gospel. Because when you see it for what it is, everything else takes its proper place. It's insanity for it not to. But when we forget about it, then we start to drift and we start to put other things in its place. So become furiously obsessed. Pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And then the third thing, the practical outworking of him being the center, is we begin to live this out. The way you are created to live. Say this often. But would have plead for us to make Jesus the center of your life. I am pleading for your joy. Your greatest joy will be found when you see that my identity, my life, my all is held and secure in Jesus. And now I get to live this way of who I am in Christ. Empowered by the Holy Spirit sent out to serve and love the people around me. To glorify and magnify his name is where you will find the greatest joy in your life. And so when we begin to live that out, we magnify who he is. We begin to proclaim with our lives that Jesus is better. And so it doesn't mean we give up all these other things that we like or we enjoy. It means that we now watch football through the lens of it's taking its proper place. And guess what? That looks really different to the world when you actually do that. When you can glorify your risen Savior, when you can make much of him despite your team losing When we can use those opportunities of rejoicing in those things as just good gifts that God's given us instead of our whole life being wrapped up in that. And it looks really different when we begin to do it. And when we begin to do it, it begins to proclaim with our lives that Jesus is better than everything else. So we'll continue to work through this idea throughout Hebrews. I'm excited about this book. It's a wonderful book that helps point us to how wonderful Jesus truly is. And so let's pray. God, we thank you. For your word, we thank you for what it teaches us, for how it points us more fully to you. Uh, We thank you most of all for Jesus, that you love us enough that you would come to us, that despite this incredible picture of who you are, that we can't know you, that we can come to you, that we can have a relationship with you, and it's all because of what you've done for us, and for that we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.